Welcome to the Inspiring Social Entrepreneurs Podcast. My name is Fergal Byrne. Every week, I talk to inspiring social entrepreneurs and changemakers dedicated to building a better world. Here, they tell their stories, the highs and the lows, and share what they have learned to help other social entrepreneurs and changemakers on their journey. But we essentially have a failure of the political system that's bolstering up a production system that is undermining kind of the life support system of the planet. If you're too big to fail, so to speak, you can keep going for a long time, but it's costing us. If you think ahead the next few decades even, it doesn't line up with actually us being able to keep this thing going. Can organic feed the world? And really that should be turned around and asked, what can um, continue to provide for human systems that doesn't undermine really the ecosystems that we ultimately depend on more than we tend to realize. I'm very pleased today to introduce Dr. Jason Bradford. Jason is managing partner of Farmland, an organization that acquires conventional farmland and converts it to organic sustainable farmland and leases the land to farmers. Jason is a highly regarded scientist and expert in sustainability and believes sustainable agriculture can happen at scale and be more profitable than conventional farming. Jason leads farm management for farmland including crop rotation planning, organic certification and working with farmer, tenant and partners. Thank you very much, Jason, for taking the time to speak to inspiring social entrepreneurs today. It's a great privilege to have an opportunity to talk to you and get some insights into farmland and your journey and vision for the future. A good place to start might be if you were able to tell me just a little bit about the background to farmland and what you do. I was an academic biologist and saw the disconnect between um, sort of a long-term, sustainable, viable means of you know, procuring food, fiber for people and, um, and the actual practices. Um, and so I was looking for models that would um, sort of place, place the, the, the growing of, of crops and production of livestock in an ecological context that, was, um, that I thought had a chance of persisting over time. And so um, my original thought was come up with some uh, capital partner to have a significant size farm. But I sort of thought it was a one-off, you know, um, farm of a typical size, and I would help kind of put it together and manage it. And then my, when I met Craig Wishner, my business partner and co-founder, he, he led me to thinking about it from a fun perspective that we could impact many more acres um, by uh, aggregating private equity capital, um, purchasing much more land than I had envisioned managing. So that's how it came about with um, my vision for what to do on the land and Craig's vision for how to uh, secure capital and scale it. And so what is the vision on the land side? What are the shortcomings that you're hoping to overcome? Sure. Well, if you look at how agriculture is set up right now, um, it's highly dependent upon external inputs. So there's massive quantities of mined um, fertilizers, um, fossil fuel derived, and uh, just mineral wealth. And the, um, the output then is also uh, sent off in, into the, uh, anywhere in the world. And there's really not a feedback loop where waste product comes back to the land um, and then the practices themselves tend to degrade soil over time uh, and cause a lot of pollution, or they concentrate animals in, in 
you know, dense locations, then, then you get a problem of waste buildup in those locales. So you have the sort of stripping of um, concentrated mineral wealth from some parts of the world, putting it onto agricultural soils in ways that damage those soils, use of other toxic inputs like pesticides that impact uh, uh, biodiversity, and uh, and then um, pollution to you know air and, and water systems. And then a lot of, um, frankly, um, kind of I consider you know, animal treatment that is pretty poor. So, you know, it doesn't align with people's long-term moral, ethical sensibilities, and it doesn't line up with, if you think ahead the next few decades even, it doesn't line up with actually us being able to keep this thing going. Um, so I think, you know, people sometimes ask, can organic feed the world? And really that should be turned around and ask, well, conventional agriculture is going to fail. It's going to fall apart given the dependence it has on, on external inputs and the, um, and the pollution problems it causes. So really we need to turn that question around and say, what can um, continue to provide for human systems that doesn't undermine really the ecosystems that, that we ultimately depend on uh, more more than we uh, we tend to realize. Right. I know I, looking at your website, I just this idea I think is quite powerful really to demonstrate sustainable agriculture at scale is more economically viable than chemical dependent commodity agriculture. It's very interesting. One question I'd have is about the time frame in which you're operating. Sustainable agriculture at scale is more economically viable. To what extent is the at scale part of this an important part of what you're doing? The question about scale is a really interesting one. There, there was, there's what I consider you know, um, right scale, and and that actually is really dependent upon kind of the economic system you're living in and how mechanized you are, um, what the cost of labor is, um, and so we're we're tending to work, you know, with what we've got in terms of you know the United States has a a a low labor input economy essentially. Um, we replace a lot of labor with capital. Um, and so what you have right now is you have a lot of really interesting things going on with smaller farms that um, might have you know, farmer's markets, um, direct-to-consumer uh, systems, and the, the demand for that kind of food is, is, is going up, but the cost of that food is pretty high because the, um, the scale that they're operating on is fairly low, and so their labor input per unit output tends to be high. Now, interestingly, if you were to look at, you know, those systems from a sense of job creation or um, from a perspective of um, value per acre created, they tend to be very high. But in terms of return to human labor, um, they tend to be low. So, so what we're trying to do in our system is, for example, Rotate on, rotate between, say, crops and livestock on fields that are typical for American agricultural systems. And so you would, you're going to look at our fields and they might average 25 acres. And whereas a very, you know, a small farm might try to put cows and sheep on and grow vegetables and grow grains on 25 acres. Uh, and, and each one of those enterprises just has a hard time standing on its own. Um, we are more like saying, Here's 200 acres that's in pasture, 
there's a lot of animals that can get on that for a number of years, and then they'll move off and we'll have um, crops in there. And again, you're going to have people operating with um, large pieces of equipment, and so your cost to produce any one of those uh, products, whether it's lamb or beef or vegetables or grains, is going to be lower. And what we're trying to do, though, at the same time, is be really good about crop rotation, um, be really good about uh, building up the soil, protecting the environment, and and yet have better better margins than some of the very small scale farms do. Right, right. I suppose you're, in a sense, it's a research project as well, in the sense that you're hoping to learn what works best. One thing that I learned is, you know, the system works um, from a, a theoretical premise that you need to um, take soils and not do intensive tillage year after year, trying to go after the the highest value crop you can get every year. Um, that's that's a recipe for failure. These fields that do that get weedy, and I don't care if you're conventional or organic, it becomes a problem. Uh, soil structure breaks down, opportunistic weeds take over, and you end up, you know, end up going from very profitable to losing money, but you don't rest it in the sense of not growing something on it, but you grow you grow the soil back. You rest it in the sense that you're not degrading the soil through heavy tillage. You're putting it into forage crops for livestock, so pastures. And that really rebuilds the soil, and it, it sets the soil up so that when you go back into crops, you have low weed pressure and good fertility. Um, we've gone through enough of this, so I can say that it works, um, but you have to have a lot of patience. You have to be looking at it from a, you know, 10-year or more perspective um, and looking at it from a portfolio perspective and that that particular field, um, I need to understand its, its, its value over the next 10 years, not, the, not what the, what's the most I can potentially get out of it this year. And so patience and a long-term outlook um, is really critical. This is not a this is not a buy the land and you know extract as much value as you can right now. This is more build the value um, ecologically, and then we'll, you'll you'll reduce your external inputs and your risk when you when you do farm. You have a pretty demanding investor group, I suppose, um, who. Because these ideas are powerful ideas, I suppose investors would say, what's the economics here? Because some of what you're talking about, I guess, is a change in perspective, you know, taking a longer term horizon and so forth. But also some of it is, I guess, actual insights into the economics of doing that, what you've seen from your experience. Can you talk a little bit about that? I mean, who are your investors, generally speaking? What has been on their mind, you know, investing in farmland? And what's the journey you've been on? Well, most of the investors um, come to us uh, very, you know, fairly aware of uh, a couple things. They're aware that um, organic food is um, more expensive, um, harder to get, um, but they tend to be consumers of that. So they want they want that food to be more available. Um, then. A lot of people then on the journey, you know, why do they pick that? You know, it might be personal health reasons, worried about pesticides, um, residues. But then they often will be also aware of the larger issues that organic farming tends to be 
um, it, you know, have not have nearly as many environmental negatives. And if done right, can I think really be positive for the environment? And so these folks, um, you know, care about care about the rivers and they care about the air and they care about biodiversity and and so it's really, you know, in some cases, you know, it's a painful thing to realize if you're a, a person that is depending upon farmers to to give you, you know, <laughs> the means of subsistence to think that those farmers are caught in a system which actually is damaging to the broader environment. So most investors, I believe, are, are aware of this, and they may not understand the details, but they're very concerned about it. And so the ones that I, I do a lot of investor tours where I, they, they want to come out and see the places, and um, it becomes very clear to me that um, most are investing because this is something that they really value. And, um, you know, they tell me, um, hey, do this, just do this right. You know, they're not, as, they don't tend to be as worried about near term return as they are about you guys, you guys get this, get this right because they understand that, um, we're, we're a model that people are looking for, for, for maybe a way out of the trap that, that the agricultural system's in. What would you say is the vision? Is it 10,000? What is the, the scale of your activity at the moment? And what's your vision over five or 10 years? We're managing about uh, 12,000 farmable acres uh, in two states. Roughly half is in California and half is in uh, Oregon. And the goal um, over the next um, few years is to uh, significantly expand that portfolio of holdings. And, and just, uh, you know, keep improving on our ability to, to manage, manage these assets and, um, get, get, get more of the acres certified organic and getting those, getting those returns. Um, so you think about it, it's a three year process. If we bought a property and then from day one said we're converting it to organic, um, it's a three year process for that, just for the certification. And so a lot of farms we buy, um, you can't necessarily start your conversion to organic right away because you've got maybe uh, conventional tenants on there who have leases and are growing growing crops that may be perennial crops like alfalfa um, or a grass seed crop where you can't just take it out right away. So there's definitely this lag between when we buy something and when we can implement our model. There's also our ability to then manage those acres under our model. So it's going to take a while for not just purchasing the land, but really then turning it around and showing that, that full cycle economic return. Um, but I, I, you know, in, in between five and 10 years from now, I hope we have um, even larger holdings and that um, it's been, most of it's been converted and we're, we're doing we're doing really well um, financially as, as well. How do you contextualize this? If you had fifteen thousand acres, how big is that? How many other organic farms are there with that kind of scale, or where does that fit into any kind of farming? I don't really have a sense of what's big in this environment. For comparison, I would say that in California, um, typical Central Valley farmers may have anywhere from four to ten thousand acres they manage. Here in Oregon, um, the typical farmers are going to be managing 
um, one to six thousand, and um, and so you know, right now we're kind of at the size of a couple of typical farm farm businesses, and and so we're people you know, we're, we're actually not that big um, from a fund perspective. If you think of you know a fund that holds land and and um, and manages it, we're the size we're the size of essentially normal scale farming enterprises. What have been some of the biggest challenges, Jason, that you had to address? Well, the biggest challenge is really um, putting, you know, lining up the pieces um, and coordinating them. So think about what we have is we have a fundraising arm that, that raising is investor capital. We have sort of land acquisition duties to perform. So as, as you're raising, as land opportunities come in, you want to have the capital to buy them. But then once you buy them, you also then have to have management in place to be able to deliver on your goals for those properties. And so the challenge is getting all that, all that sort of in sync. And we've had, you know, plenty of situations where properties come up for sale and we'd love to buy them. We don't have the money for it right now. And then we get situations where um, we get money and we buy a big piece of property. And now we got to catch up on the on the scaling of our management. So um, that's that's probably the biggest challenge. It's just sort of you know doing all those really well as you're growing. Yeah. Are there other organizations you know who are doing something similar? There are some other funds that um, do this and. They, some of them, they usually have a slightly different um, structure or methodology. Um, and, but yeah, there are organic farmland funds. We're, they're pretty tiny um, compared to the conventional funds. Um, so there's some that focus more on, say, restoring grasslands or rangelands with just, just animal agriculture. There are some that sort of take a one-farm, one-farmer model where they will pool capital to buy a, a single farm and there's a, there's a, you know, each investor just owns a certain amount of shares in that farm and then they lease that farm out to a single farmer. Um, ours is different in that our investors are all into all our properties at whatever proportion they put their money in. So they're really spreading their investment out among all our farms. And then we we take a more portfolio approach where different farmers are going to be or ranchers are going to be um, most appropriate for a particular piece of land at a particular time. So we kind of rotate farmers while we rotate fields. You see, and and so we that's sort of our our unique niche in this. What does that mean? I mean, you talk about unique niche. What's the underlying rationale? I guess, Jason. Well, it's that it's that the land. The land needs diversity of, of, of crops and of livestock. The problem is, is that there, there, are, there aren't really farmers who operate at scale for that kind of diversity. You don't have a farmer who can say, oh, I'll take 2,000 acres and I'll do sheep, I'll do cattle, I'll do hogs here and there, um, I'll do, I'll do uh, vegetables, I'll do grains, um, and I'll manage that whole rotation. And I'll do it all profitably, um, et cetera. Most people have some sort of specialization or focus. 
where they have the specialized knowledge and specialized equipment. Um, and so when, when somebody, uh, when a farmer gets uh, tenure on a piece of land, they tend to do just, you know, the three tricks that they've got on that piece of land. And, and that's not really good for that land. But it is good in our economic system where you want scale and specialization. You see? So what, what we came to this saying is like the ecological principle says diversify and rotate. And the economic system is saying um, specialize and get big. Okay? And so we're trying to work with that economic uh, reality we're in. But rotate then the use. So you can say you can be a very large tomato farmer. And here, go ahead and take this 300 acres for tomatoes. But you're going to get it for, you're going to get that field for that year for tomatoes. And then, okay, next year, there's another 300 acres. Now we've got someone else coming behind you that's going to do something else. So that's, that's our, that's our uniqueness is that we actually manage that rotation and we don't give farmers a long-term tenure on a particular piece of land. Although what we do have is long-term relationships with farmers that we like to work with. And they like it because they know that they're going to get good land that's been rotated appropriately. Most of these farmers know they should be rotating more. Right. It's just yeah. that they don't have the real capacity to manage that because their simplification, scale, immediate return requirements, et cetera, uh, push them, push them into corners that they know is not good long term. That's interesting. How would you demonstrate, I suppose, the benefits through an equation or numbers or, you know, of doing this rotation, the overview of, you know, what's actually happening? But then there's the, I suppose, at a very down to earth level, you know, how does it change the economics? I suppose, how do you measure this? Is it output per sure. acre? I mean, what variables do you look at? So financially, yeah, you would start looking at, you know, the and, and it, it's hard to do an aggregate yet because we have so many things in you know, haven't been transitioning yet or just starting the transition. Um, one way to look at it is to say, which of our farms have gone through that whole cycle of transition? And we only have, we only really have uh, a couple. Um, and start looking at the returns on those and what's happened to them. And they, they do really well. They, um, you know, we're tending to get returns that are um, at least double um, what, what a conventional farmer would have gotten prior to our, our taking over management. Is that in terms of output or return investment or what kind of measures would you look at? Well, we tend to look at, yeah, you know, the um, uh, say rent per acre per year kind of thing. The other um, other things that are interesting to look at um, is crop diversity. So what would be, if you look at a landscape and you say, what was here before? What was the typical mix of crops grown on these properties before? And then you look at it now that we have it. So you could get diversity measures. Um, those are pretty easy to do. Soil monitoring would be nice. The problem with soil monitoring is that it, it can be kind of costly and it changes slowly. But you should see over time an improvement in things like soil organic matter. It would be nice to monitor the quality of, uh, of the any, any uh, rivers that are nearby. But again, you know, we're small relative to the agricultural matrix we're in, so I don't know if you'd see that. Um, it'd be nice to measure the biodiversity that's on our farms. And so you should be able to see better populations of, say, bumblebees or other kind of indicators, indicator species of low toxicity and um, good habitat. 
Um, but again, that's, that's expensive and, and it'd be great to have each other thing that a research group uh, would be great to get involved with. All these kind of things have been measured on organic farms versus conventional farms. Uh, they do, they, you tend to get better performance uh, doing what we're doing. So um, the Union of Concerned Scientists, for example, has some really good reports that um, summarize the research. A lot of it's been done in Europe. Um, but, you know, doing it on, on our particular farms, it's, it's quite a bit of, um, it's quite expensive, actually, <laughs> to monitor this stuff. So what we try to do is really um, understand the best practices, implement them, and um, you should start seeing the results in terms of, oh, when you rotate from pasture into these crops, uh, there's low weed pressure and there's good fertility. The crops do well. That kind of thing. That's fascinating. I saw an amazing French documentary called Think Global, Act Rural. I don't know whether you've seen mm-hmm. that. It's about agricultural self-sufficiency and it's about seed banks and how research that microbiologists are doing in France and organic plantation in the Ukraine. It's very interesting. They're noting how, yeah. how few soil microbiologists there are around these days. <laughs> exactly, right. Exactly. Um, yeah, we're probably changing all kinds of things, but um, there's not enough people really to measure it and monitor it right now. We'd love to set up a program to do that. It would be really neat. Um, we do have uh, contacts, good, good contacts with some professors at, um, at like Oregon State University, which is the agricultural college that's adjacent to our Oregon property. Um, we've talked to people at UC Berkeley, um, near the closest, closest university to our California property. So there are research groups that are interested or looking at us, but there's a huge lag between you know, a professor getting some interest and um, and writing a grant and you know funding that kind of that stuff. We do have graduate students doing work on our farms, um, so we'll start seeing some things like that come out of it eventually. But again, you know, we we bought our first property in 2010. And um, our next one in 2011, and then we bought a couple in 2012. So, um, you know, we, we're still pretty early, early on in our development. And what is the problem with conventional agriculture? There's too many pesticides and chemicals put into the soil. At what point is it going to break down or will just food become, you know, more toxic? We know somehow that something's not right. How come it keeps limping along? <laughs> yeah, great question. It's sort of a, you know, it keeps limping along, I think, because um, there's really this a little bit of um, all the, any, any kind of support that it needs, it seems to get uh, government support. Um, there's, there's insurance programs for it. There's, uh, if there's, if, so if you have high, high input prices and low commodity prices, um, and suddenly you're not profitable, but you're growing the major commodity crops, the government will bail you out and make sure you have got a business, you know? So, um, really the, we have an entire, it's a, it's a, you know, it's a, it's a public-private kind of partnership. There's private insurance companies involved that are brokering all this. But we essentially um, are have a failure of um, the political system to it's bolstering up a production system that is undermining kind of the life support system of the planet. And, and so you can, you know, if you're too big to fail, so to speak, um, 
you can keep them, you can keep going for a long time, but uh, it's costing us. And um, and so, in a sense, I see the agriculture is having kind of negative social returns right now. Um, but we're still doing it, and it's not uncommon for human systems to do that. I mean, just think of how many nuclear weapons we we produced, and now we're trying to get rid of them. Uh, but we went a long time just building more and more. <laughs> Um, in an overkill kind of perspective, but um, it, it's a little nuts. But institutions get locked into ways of doing things. There's money involved, um, and there's just this vicious circle that happens. So that's what I think is going on with our farming system. It's really sad. It's, it's incredibly detrimental. And the longer it goes on, the the um, the higher the risk becomes that there does become some sort of uh, cascading set of failures. You can't say when that's going to happen in a complex system like that, but everyone sees the risk um, who's paying attention. Um, you know, you get you get a um, you get the wrong set of um, storms and or heat waves um, and or floods and large large sections of commodity corn have poor yields or wheat, and then you see major food spikes. This this happens. Yeah. You remember in 2008, um, 2009. Yeah. Uh, and so um, a lot of governments toppled because of that. Food prices went up. A lot of the Arab Spring, I think, is a result of um, just people getting hungry and then um, going going on the streets and rebelling. And so, you know, we've actually seen um, serious breakdowns already resulting from the system we've got. Um, and for the most part, we just sort of doubled down on it. So, yeah. uh, pretty pretty messed up, in my opinion. What about GM crops? What's your view? Uh, uh, genetic, so genetic engineering, um, I don't have a single view on that. I think, um, you know, it, it can be it can be done in ways that um, are are fairly fairly safe and okay, and it, and we can we can be done in ways that are extremely dangerous. Um, and it can be done in ways that are socially uh, beneficial, and it can be done in ways that um, are kind of messed up. I think one of the problems that we've got now is that the, the first generation um, were were crops that were um, essentially driven by the need for certain uh, chemical companies to uh, boost sales of their products, and uh, and so you know. I'm not so worried about those particular things from a food safety perspective. Um, what I see, what I don't like about like the Roundup resistant kind of stuff is it just, you know, it's lock farmers into uh, more dependence on herbicides that have essentially now done things like, you know, put the monarch butterfly at risk. And that's just one indicator species. There's, there's thousands of other. <laughs> Um, insects that are also probably in major decline, but they just don't have big showy uh, wings. Um, so, so that's that's my major problem with with that. Um, you can look at examples where it, it could have been used really well. I mean, the papaya was rescued in Hawaii from a from a virus um, because of a you know a university publicly funded program. Um, that that uh, essentially genetically engineered papaya to to survive that virus. So just about any any papaya you get from Hawaii is genetically engineered, and um, I can't see a downside to it honestly. 
So I, you have to look at each one of these uh, genetic, genetically engineered crops um, or proposals to do something on its own merits, really, and not just have a blanket statement against the technology. Very interesting way of looking at it. And then there's also the whole question of the ownership of patented life forms and so forth. You can, you can look at them yeah, really that's, independently. That's the problem I have. You can say yeah. if these were programs were developed by governments with the, you know, the overall benefit of, you know, mankind, as it were, rather than, you know, narrow financial returns to a small group, you already would take away some very big questions and look at it in a different way, I think. That's right. It's been very interesting to talk to you, Jason, and thank you very much for your time. And I wish you the very best of success with Farmland. It's a great venture and it sounds like you're well on your way. <laughs> I'm already getting some great results. Um, so thank you. Hey, thanks a lot for reaching out to us, Virgo. It was good talking to you. Thank you for listening to the Inspiring Social Entrepreneur Podcast. I hope you found this interview inspiring. Please make sure to visit www.inspiringsocialentrepreneurs.com and subscribe to make sure you don't miss any future podcasts.